In the past week, Hungary shut its border with Croatia. There have been clashes between Palestinians and Israeli troops across the West Bank, and the Syrian army begins a new offensive. It's Sunday the 18th of October 2015, and you're listening to the Oxford International Relations Society podcast, The Beacon. Hello and welcome to The Beacon. I'm your host, Will Yeldon. Our focus this week is on Russia's escalating intervention in Syria. It all began with Russian airstrikes reported on the 30th of September, just days after both Obama and Putin gave speeches at the 70th session of the UN General Assembly. Though both predictably argued for an end to the conflict, the key figure that divided them was President Bashar al-Assad of Syria, with Obama arguing that any lasting resolution must not have a place for the president, and Putin denouncing this as an enormous mistake. Since then, we have seen intensive airstrikes supporting a major offensive by the Syrian army and naval bombardments of cruise missiles from ships in the Caspian Sea. In recent months, with the capture of Idlib by Jabhat al-Nusra and al-Qaeda affiliate, it appeared that despite Russian aid and Iranian assistance via Hezbollah, Assad's regime was weakening. This latest move has reshuffled the chess pieces entirely. Many have interpreted this as Russia flexing its muscles, attempting to be taken seriously on the international stage. What's more, the relative US and Western inactivity is compounding allegations of Obama's potentially weak foreign policy. However, NATO has reacted. First issuing a statement on October 4th, Jens Stoltenberg, Secretary General of NATO, also announced the doubling of the size of the NATO response force to 40,000, stating, all of this sends a clear message to all NATO citizens, NATO is ready. This is tough talk, but time will tell if it has any impact at all. Has Russia bitten off more than it can chew? Is this part of a geopolitical power play by Putin? And how should the international community respond to try and end the conflict? To answer these questions, I spoke first to Professor Jennifer Welch, Special Advisor to the United Nations Secretary General on the Responsibility to Protect. Professor Welch is Chair in International Relations at the European University Institute and a Senior Research Fellow at Somerville College, University of Oxford. Thank you very much for agreeing to speak to us, Professor Welch. It's a pleasure. I'd like to begin by looking at your own position as Special Advisor on the Responsibility to Protect. Do you think you could briefly outline the principle for our listeners? The responsibility to protect is, at bottom, a very simple imperative that all states have the responsibility to protect their populations from four acts that the international community has identified as crimes, war crimes, ethnic cleansing, crimes against humanity, and genocide. And though, in addition to states having the responsibility to protect their populations, the international community has a responsibility to assist states in fulfilling their protection role, and if necessary, in the case of manifest failure of the state, to providing protection. It's a statement of political commitment on uh, the part of sovereign states in the UN system that was encapsulated in the 2005 summit outcome document of the last major gathering uh, of the United Nations to celebrate the 60th anniversary. As you know, we're celebrating the 70th anniversary this fall. So it is not per se a legal principle, although it is based on existing legal obligations that states have to protect their population. So is it an extension of a domestic um, responsibility, essentially? Yes, there's a, there's a very prominent and primary domestic responsibility which incidentally, according to state endorsement in 2005, can, contains a preventive component. They agreed not only that they had a responsibility to protect from these acts, but also to prevent 
feedback, including their incitement. Uh, and so I think it's important to acknowledge that preventive component. And what have been the um, the challenges in uh, trying trying to implement this principle in Syria? Well, I think there are two uh, sets of challenges, if you will. Firstly, because there is a preventive component, the responsibility to protect suffers the same challenges as any preventive agenda. And that is that everyone rhetorically agrees that prevention is much better than response. We should all do what we can to prevent. But the reality is that the investment of resources and energy for prevention rarely matches what we do for response. Um, there's a related challenge that it's very difficult to prove when prevention has worked uh, because you're proving a negative. Something has to occur. And so I think there's been a challenge uh, in actually getting states to uh, implement their obligations with respect to prevention because there's been a lack of clarity about what works. And we're addressing that in, in various ways by trying to improve knowledge of the toolkit for prevention. But that always remains a challenge. The second, when we turn to response and the role of the international community, is that responsibility to protect is when you look at uh, the more coercive instruments that might be associated mm. with it, if prevention fails or if cooperation with the state fails, the more coercive instruments that might be used are housed within the existing collective security framework of the UN Charter. So responsibility to protect, despite what some have argued, um, is very firmly rooted in charter principles. And it claims that if there is going to be the use, for example, uh, peace forces or any form of military force, but it must be authorized by the Security Council. So the responsibility to protect, like other mechanisms, relies on agreement by Security Council measures for its more coercive measures. Um, but I hasten to add that it is not synonymous with those coercive measures. The actions that are, are um, envisaged by the principle are wider uh, than that. So it's not simply a military intervention. No, mm. although it encompasses that, it's not limited. I mean, and what problems has uh, a divided Security Council posed? Because obviously Russian and Chinese vetoes of motions simply condemning Assad's regime has, have caused a lot of problems in galvanizing the international community. I think the, the tensions in the Security Council create two sets of problems. Firstly, there is a reluctance and, it, and that reluctance is now more pronounced given the current environment, to bring issues to the council at an earlier stage. Mm. Uh, and ideally, this is what the responsibility to protect principle would call for, that if we see signs of crisis looming, we try to act co collectively earlier on to prevent the outbreak of systematic violence or indeed the commission of crime. But there is great sensitivity in the council to bringing a country situation onto the agenda. Uh, in some cases, particularly if that's a member state which has ties to one of the permanent five and they're concerned about external scrutiny of what might be happening inside mm. that country, for example. The other challenge, of course, is if you have real disagreement on the measures being uh, proposed. So, for example, uh, in, the, in the case of Syria, which we can go on to discuss, you have had real profound disagreement about whether certain mechanisms actually would enhance 
the chances of the conflict being resolved peacefully or not. And so that has been a major challenge if you have very different visions about uh, about what will what will work. There are cases though where we have seen council members come to an agreement. So for example, even though we wouldn't call this necessarily a case of successful prevention, when there was an outbreak of very serious intercommunal violence in the Central African Republic, for example, mm-hmm. the council did come to agreement on the dispatching of quite a significant stabilization force with a Chapter 7 mandate. Uh, the same happened in Mali. Uh, and the same happened a few years ago with respect to South Sudan, although it has been more tricky recently with respect to South Sudan. But let's turn to Syria. Obviously, the increased Russian escalation in the past month has caused a lot of problems, really. I mean, how is this going to impact on any future coordinated response? Well, I, I think the, the stepping up of, of Russian action reflects a long-standing position uh, that they have held with respect to this conflict, that the, in their view, what is the legitimate government and regime of Syria should not be undermined. Yeah. Uh, and let's remember that the predominant concern for the Russians, in addition to their relationship, their long-standing relationship uh, with the Syrian government, is a concern about the rise of terrorism in that region and the mm. spillover effect. Um, and those concerns are, are important um, to take on board. That being said, I think uh, the Russian position at various times, alongside the position of some other states, has made it very difficult to come to a collective agreement among Security Council members to show the resolve of the Security Council and the international community with respect uh, to the infringements of promises that have been made. And I think in particular of, um, of June of 2012, when we were in a much better place in terms of having uh, a view of what might need to happen in Syria, and the council couldn't agree uh, at that point on, on collective measures or on the consequences that might flow if, for example, the Syrian government did not um, deliver on its promises. Now we're in a situation where um, it's actively through military means assisting the Syrian the Syrian government in terms of, of helping to defend it in, in what is becoming a shrinking corridor leading to the coast. On the one hand, we could see this as I think perhaps some in Russia would do as a way of trying to bring about a quicker end to the violence, but that hasn't paid off. We haven't yet seen this translate into successful peace talks, mm. and which which will ultimately uh, be the resolution. It will have to be a political um, resolution. And it's also raised, obviously, a great deal of suspicion on the part of other actors with, a, with an interest in the conflict. Mm. So at the moment, it's unclear how this is actually going to help foster the kind of collective response we need. Uh, but it's early, it's very early days in terms of assessing the impact. Hmm. You mentioned earlier the 70th session of the UN General Assembly. Um, what ramifications does this sudden escalation pose for uh, US-Russia relations in the future, and also Russia's position in the international community? Will it divert attention away from Ukraine? Well, I think it's undeniable that we're entering a period where, in contrast to um, earlier uh, in the 2000s, we 
the, the prospect of getting Security Council agreement on a range of things um, was much more likely, and that you had a more common view of the threat to international peace and security. Uh, and now we're in an era where Security Council agreement is not forthcoming. Mm. Uh, and there is some spillover into other areas. I mean, I mentioned the agreement with respect to Central African Republic. Yeah. Um, but in other cases as well, we're beginning to see it become with respect to sanctions, for example. Uh, even, even, uh, with respect to a country like Burundi or elsewhere, where we might have expected where there's a lack of a real strategic interest on the part of one of the permanent five. Mm. We would expect there to be more agreement. Uh, I don't think we can take that as a given any longer. And on the same, on, by the same token, I think we're seeing unprecedented levels of criticism of the Security Council. One of the things that the responsibility to protect principle has done, and let's remember, a principle can't force action. Mm. It can only raise questions, raise expectations, and raise the political cost of inaction. That's all it can do. And with respect to Syria in particular, we've seen, for example, the General Assembly pass a couple of resolutions which have been quite strong mm. in their denunciation of the failure of the Security Council to live up to its responsibility. There are a number of proposals on the table for reform of the Council, and I'm not talking just about membership, that's one aspect and of it, as well. but at the moment there is a proposal on the table from the French government mm. And a modified version of that proposal uh, that has been presented by something called the Act Group of States that are calling for um, members of the Council to show restraint in the use of their veto mm, yeah. in situations where atrocity crimes might be imminent or being committed. So while we're seeing a more tense environment, we're also, I think, seeing unprecedented critique. And perhaps, over time, a realization on the part of council members that the failure to find common ground is affecting the standing of the council itself. And that's not good news for the permanent five, who reap many, many benefits uh, from the stature of the Security Council. So if this capital is declining, uh, that's something they need to be concerned about. Do you think the, um, the responsibility to protect principle carries a humanitarian uh, responsibilities as well. Is there a possibility for international unity on ways of combating the refugee crisis in more humanitarian uh, measures? Well, I mean, let me answer that in two ways. And that is, if we go back to what member states committed themselves mm. to in 2005, they very clearly um, articulated that the international community should use a variety of means uh, to assist states or to provide protection. And they explicitly talked about diplomatic, political, and humanitarian needs. Mm. And so if we think just about Syria, for example, while it's true that the Security Council has not found agreement on certain measures, sanctions, for example, um, it has uh, come to agreement and passed quite significant resolutions on enhancing uh, the access for humanitarian workers. Um, and it has spoken clearly about the need to respect international humanitarian law um, and ensure access. Now, one might say that's the low-hanging fruit, that's easy for them to agree on, mm -hmm. therefore they do. 
but we shouldn't we shouldn't minimize the impact of that on, on human life. In terms of the refugee crisis, I do think there's a role for the responsibility to protect in two respects. The first is that the responsibility to protect is a collective responsibility. It stresses that the international community as a whole um, carries a responsibility. And therefore, each state has to think about the ways in which it might implement that. Certain states that neighbor Syria have acted very heroically on their responsibilities by taking in refugees. I'm thinking particularly of Jordan mm, yeah. and Lebanon. But with respect to European states, I think where populations are explicitly fleeing atrocity crimes, war crimes, for example, or indeed in the case of certain communities, uh, potential ethnic cleansing, then um, allowing them safe passage, providing them with a safe environment is a way to act upon one's responsibility to protect. It isn't providing protection in the country where they reside, but it is providing protection for those who are fleeing. And in that sense, I think there is a link. I think that's probably all we've got time for. Um, but thank you so much again for agreeing to speak. Thank you. Next, I spoke to Dr. Merhaf Zhujati. He is a scholar at the Middle East Institute, professor at the National Defence University's Near East South Asia Centre for Strategic Studies and a former director of the Middle East Studies Programme at the George Washington University. He is also a key member of the Opposition Syrian National Council and has met with Syrian government representatives in Geneva. Thank you very much for joining us, Dr. Zhujati. My pleasure. Um, you yourself are very involved in the moderate Syrian opposition and have appeared at many conferences on their behalf. Could you give an account of your own position? and then the current state of the opposition movement as you see it. Well, when we are talking about opposition, of course, we are talking about uh, different groups. The moderate opposition consists of the Syrian National Coalition, which is a political group, and there is on the ground the Free Syrian Army. Uh, both are connected through the Supreme Military Council. The Free Syrian Army, unfortunately, does not have a hierarchy, nor does it even have a structure. Uh, and that is because uh, different factions have been supported by different states. Those states that have interest in Syria are funneling assistance and money to different factions, therefore making a unity of the moderate forces on the ground very, very difficult. On the other hand, you have other uh, opposition groups, and these are the radical Islamist groups, uh, that the FSA is fighting as well as the Assad regime. So when we are talking about the, the moderate, uh, we are talking about a group of people that to my mind represents most Syrians in their demands for freedom, for dignity, and for a democratic government in Syria. These are secularists. They are inclusive of all ethnic and sectarian groups of Syria. And so, uh, basically, again, although they represent the majority of the Syrian people, mm. unfortunately, they have had very little assistance from the international community generally. They have been fought by the Assad regime. They have been fought by the uh, radical Islamists, including ISIS, and in many cases, including al-Nusra. And so here is the Syrian people stuck between a rock and the hard place and getting very little assistance from the international community. 
Obviously, Russia's recent aggression um, and escalation has complicated matters significantly. The US State Department spokesman John Kirby said recently that 90% of the strikes that Russia is enacting are actually taking place not against ISIL or al-Qaeda-affiliated terrorists, but other more moderate forces of the opposition. What effect has this had? I like the word to use, Russian aggression, because it really is. It's an aggression. Uh, it is an aggressive intervention in Syria on the side of the Assad regime. Mm. It is meant to prop up the Assad regime. I am to believe the uh, intelligence sources of a variety of places, including the United States and including NATO, over 90% of uh, Russian operations have been carried out against the moderate Syrian rebels, mm. rather than ISIS, as has been proclaimed by Russia. It is having significant effects on the ground in that the Russian Air Force is coordinating with the army of the Assad regime on the ground in view of a counter-offensive uh, that has begun. And so here the Free Syrian Army is battling now not only the Assad regime, not only ISIS, but also the Russian Air Force. You yourself have repeatedly argued that Assad must be got rid of if there's any tenable solution to Syria. Um, and you've criticised other other articles saying Assad will have to stay for a while. That's by Paul Pillar. Um, do you still stand by this viewpoint? We have to keep our eye constantly focused on the root cause of this entire crisis. And the root cause is the Assad regime, which is a corrupt regime, a brutal regime, came to power illegally. The elections that have been held proclaiming young Bashar al-Assad to be president have been monkey elections. He is not the legitimate leader of Syria. The people of Syria have very clearly, for the past four and a half years, told him to vote. The Assad regime is the epicenter of this crisis. There is no way that there can be meaningful talks with Assad in power. The solution, uh, the moderate Syrian rebels agree, is a political solution. It should not be a military one. Mm -hmm. But this political solution, as per the Geneva Conference, must include both the opposition, the moderate opposition, and elements of the regime, but those without blood on their hands. And that means there is no room for Assad. And as long as Assad is in power, the crisis is going to continue. He is galvanizing and radicalizing the population. He has, as we have evidence of this, he has, on a number of occasions, cooperated with forces like ISIS intentionally in order to present the international community with a choice that it is either ISIS or him. Well, the Syrian people don't love either. The Syrian people are not radical Islamists. They do not believe nor support ISIS. It is their enemy. Nor do they want the continuation of a dictatorial, brutal, corrupt regime. And that means any new Syria and any new transitional government that would lead to a democratic Syria would inevitably exclude Assad and those around him that have blood on their hands. At the um, 70th session of the UN General Assembly, both Obama and Putin gave speeches addressing Syria. The main difference between them was, as we've been talking about, the position of Assad. However, obviously, recent Russian aggression, do you think this has guaranteed Assad staying in power, at least in the short term? And what do you think will be, will be the U.S.'s reaction to the recent Russian escalation? No, I don't 
think the Russians can guarantee his survival. They have certainly tipped the balance of power, without any doubt. That would buy Assad more time, but this does not mean that Russia can guarantee his survival. What would the United States' reaction be to this Russian aggression? Well, this administration, the Obama administration, mm. from the very beginning until now, uh, has had very uh, hesitant policy towards Syria, has no strategy, and uh, President Obama is of the view that the Russians have walked into a quagmire. He sees this, he sees this as potentially uh, a crisis for Russia in the future. Although the Russians have changed the balance of power, and the bloodletting is going to uh, be stronger, but uh, will the United States react in any meaningful way against this Russian intervention? I don't think so. Not as long as Obama is uh, president. Let's focus on that a bit more. I mean, in a recent PBS documentary entitled Obama at War, you made the following statement. I just, I would say, Mr. President, that you are going to go down in history if you continue like this. And somebody who has tarnished the reputation of the United States, you have created many more enemies in the Middle East, and you have unwittingly assisted global terrorism. How instrumental do you think the U.S. and particularly, as you've been saying, its inaction have been in allowing this conflict to spiral and spiral? The entire crisis could have ended in a matter of weeks from the very beginning. The U.S. inaction has prolonged the fighting, has intensified the fighting. Moreover, the United States has on several occasions stopped those states that wanted to help the moderate rebels. By tying their hands, the United States has unwittingly propped up the Assad regime and unwittingly allowed the emergence of radical terrorist groups to fill the vacuums of power that were left by the Assad regime as a result of his many defeats against the moderate rebels. So in fact, Obama's hesitation is one foot forward, five feet back, have unwittingly galvanized a terrorist group that is threatening not only the security of the Middle East, but I would say, without exaggeration, global security. And that is going to go down in history, Obama's legacy, in that he has entirely failed Syria and is, albeit indirectly, responsible for the prolongation uh, of the bloodletting there. I mean, one of the uh, US initiatives that was implemented was a, a training program. Unfortunately, it was recently scrapped because of the frankly embarrassing results. It emerged that only about 60 rebels had been successfully trained. And even those rebels who were named Division 30 were then attacked by Jabhat al-Nusra, um, also a part of the opposition. In your mind, what were the big problems with this U.S. initiative? The first and foremost problem is that there was no political will. And it took a lot of time in order to get uh, this trained and equipped program. And even when this trained and equipped program was put in place, the procedures of the training equipped program were so bad, the vetting so stringent, the conditions upon the moderate rebels so insane that it was inevitable that it would falter. One of the conditions was that for the moderate rebels not to turn their guns on the Assad regime but on ISIS. Well, the moderate Syrian rebels in their uprising was against Assad. And so the United States truly shot itself in the foot. Uh, by this silly trade and equip program. It was too far too little, far too late, uh, and it faltered. Uh, 
I want to add to the speech here about the U.S. assistance to, mm. to the rebels that at no point in time did anyone among the moderates ask for American boots on the ground. So it's not like Syrians are asking for America to fight on their behalf. They want to do the fighting against Assad, against this unpopular, brutal dictator. They want to do it and they can do it, but they do need the assistance in terms of equipment in order to, to finish with this issue. I also want to add that even as the Assad regime, even today, is uh, uh, conducting uh, barrel bombing of civilian areas, neighborhoods, towns, villages. Until today, there is still a hesitation and a lot of debate on whether to impose a no-fly zone or not. Now the rebels do not have any air forces, nor do they have the means uh, to counter a sense air force. And so it is as though the international community is allowing him to barrel bomb a civilian population. It's true that the Syrian regime has destroyed most of its chemical weapons capability, but in these barrel bombs, they are more often than not using chlorine bombs uh, with the barrel bombs in order to decimate a civilian population. So uh, we cannot talk of any U.S. assistance. Truly, this is going to go down to history as, as, as an extremely ugly picture of a failed, failed diplomacy on the part of the United States, and the failure has cost now over 300,000 Syrian lives. In your mind, do you think the recent Russian engagement is really sustainable with their burdened economy? Do you think the Russian Russian um, forces can maintain the level of conflict they're enacting at the moment in Syria? It depends, again, on the international community. If there is no assistance to the moderate Syrian army, the overwhelming force that the Russians are bringing to bear uh, uh, in cooperation with uh, the Assad regime's forces, then this is not going to be too long of a fight. If, on the other hand, the international community is serious about saving lives, is serious about promoting democracy in Syria, then they would provide the kind of assistance that is needed. Uh, and it is in that case that then the Russians would be weakened. You are right, their economy is strained, but it is not strained to a point that they will not be able to uh, help the Assad regime. So all this really is dependent on uh, what the United States uh, and its Western allies and the regional allies mm. of the Syrian people uh, do in terms of assistance. Uh, but I see rather that the Russians have stepped in uh, where uh, America has faltered and that uh, it is now Russia that is leading the game in the Middle East. Do you think this is a, uh, in some way an attempt by Russia to turn attention away from their own actions in Ukraine and focus attention on Syria? Well, this may be a part of the reason, but it is not uh, the, the total one. No, I think that uh, I think that Russia wants to, uh, Mr. Putin wants Russia to stand up to the United States. Uh, he wants to put Russia on the map again. Um, he is of the view uh, that this entire crisis in Syria has been orchestrated by uh, the U.S., who doesn't like the Assad regime very much, and he wants to drive the point to the United States that you can't simply change regimes because you do not like them. Where his assumptions and hypotheses are flawed, is that there is no orchestration of American power uh, in Syria behind this uprising. The uprising is a national popular uprising. 
that is part and parcel of the Arab Spring, in which Arabs have risen against their dictatorial leaders, whether in Tunisia, or in Egypt, or in Libya, or in Yemen, or in, in, in Syria. But uh, again, Mr. Putin wants to put uh, Russia on the map again. There has been a lot of thought that maybe the port of Tartus in Syria is strategically important to the Russians. That mm -hmm. may be part of the uh, uh, part of the reason why the Russians are in, but I think a very, very small part. So there are many reasons why the Russians are in there. Maybe one to uh, divert attention from the Ukraine, but mostly, again, to tell the world that uh, Russia is here and that they are going to have to contend with it as a, as a serious player in international politics. Thank you very much for speaking. Thank you very much for this opportunity. Well, that's it for this week. What are your thoughts? Do get involved by visiting our website, www.oxirsoc.com, our Facebook page and Twitter feeds, and comment to keep the debate going. Similarly, we are also currently accepting both submissions for our termly print journal of Sir and more general blog articles. So for more information, do visit the website or just email sir-editor at irsoc.org. Special thanks to our speakers, Professor Welsh and Dr. Jurijati, for taking the time to speak with us. And also to our sponsors, Morgan Stanley, John Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies and the University of Kent. Please note that any opinions expressed on the show are solely those of the speakers and hosts and do not in any way represent Oxford International Relations Society as a whole. Next week, Alfie Shaw will be interviewing Professor Dawn Chatty about the refugee crisis in Europe, assessing its scale and debating ways to alleviate it. I do hope you can join us then. Goodbye.